0: Happy Sabbath, everyone. It's a good story, Chris. <laughs> thank you. And uh, thank you to the praise team. You know, I appreciate uh, music well done. Uh, what I appreciate even more than music super well done, which they did very, very well today, but is when I can tell that those that are sharing and leading are not only worshiping in it, but when the song is uplifting, that they're happy to be doing that. And uh, so the whole praise team blessed my heart today, but I do want to say I really enjoyed watching Diana play the piano. That, uh, I, I thought, man, I want to be able to do that. That sounds like she's having a really a blessed time. Well, I want to share something with you here for just a moment, and that is we have some baptisms to celebrate. Um, Jim and Shirley Leake have five sons, right? Five sons. Six sons. Oops, I, I won't tell you which one I was forgetting about. And uh, but uh, six sons, and uh, not too long ago, three of their sons made good decisions to follow Jesus, and demonstrated that decision through baptism. And I'm just really, really excited to uh, to celebrate that with you for just a moment. I think one of these sons is here, and I'm going to need his help in a moment. Uh, yeah, Dylan, are you here? Yeah, that's Dylan. So Dylan, uh, I, I probably should have warned you a little better than this, but but come join me for just a moment, okay? On behalf of you and your brothers, come, come join me. While he's coming up, um, so Dylan, who uh, was uh, 15, and Nathan, 20, were both baptized at Big Lake Summer Camp uh, last August, right, uh, by Les uh, Zolbrick, who's the camp director there. And we have just a couple of shots of their baptism. Uh, Dylan, that was an excellent decision, and, uh, and I'm glad that you had that. Was the water cold? A little bit, yeah. Always cold, always cold. And then uh, Dylan's brother Aaron, who's in between him and Nathan, was baptized at Portland Adventist Academy uh, by one of the Bible teachers there, Steve Lundquist, uh, last June. But because of different things and schedules, it's just been a little bit challenging to uh, find a time to kind of celebrate this. Well, two of these boys, Dylan's here, but Aaron and Nathan are away at college, and uh, I don't know if they're watching the live stream or if they'll get a chance to watch it later, but I'll just kind of look towards that camera and say, um, Aaron and Nathan, wish you were here, and we're super proud of your decision uh, to follow Jesus through baptism. So I have certificates for you. This is for you, Dylan, and, and for you. Can, you. can I trust you to deliver these to your brother? Yes. Yes, okay. And so just certificates to kind of acknowledge the moment, uh, but before you go, I want you to, to witness something. So uh, he received the baptism by immersion as did his brothers, but to kind of close the loop, you know, baptism is also kind of, well, I say, I, I want to officially be a part of this community, this Adventist faith. And so we want to demonstrate, not only for Dylan, but uh, if his brothers have a chance, his parents can kind of share this moment with them. And so we're thinking about three young men who gave their heart to Jesus, and Dylan is here with us today. And so I want him to see how proud and how much support. So right now, if you are excited and support and say, well done, I want you to raise every hand the Lord gave you and raise it high and wave it up here. I'll raise mine too. And uh, and that's just our show of support to you. It's a good thing you have done. Can I, I want to pray with you, and I want to pray for your brothers. Is that okay? All right. So, church family, let's, let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, just thank you. It would have been great if all of us could have been at those moments of baptism, but uh, that's just uh, not how it, it rolled out. But, Lord, thankful that we have just a moment to affirm and celebrate. Lord, I, uh, I want to pray for, for Dylan As a young man, he has felt compelled to make his decision to follow you, uh, to be a part of our Christian community, the Adventist Church family. I just pray that you seal his decision even further, that you bless him with the Holy Spirit, and that you would help him to know how to journey the rest of his life in your direction. And Lord, we lift up that same prayer for, for Aaron and Nathan as well. Just praise your name for their decision as they continue their journey at college pray for their full blessing on their lives and that you would guide and direct them and use them for your glory. Uh, So Lord, uh, we just give you the honor and praise that three young men, uh, brothers, have made a stand for you, and I pray that you would shine brightly through them. In your name we pray, amen. Amen? Amen. Thank you. Yeah, when I called Dylan up is when I realized I forgot to tell him I was going to call him up. So, so well done. I, uh, I thank you for that. Uh, I want to take just a quick moment to, uh, to mention this. Um, Pastor Julius Jones, a lot of you were here in this church family as he uh, was ministering with us for six, seven, eight years, nine years, I don't remember how long, wonderful, wonderful man of God and his wife, uh, Joyce. I received a text message from uh, Julius just the other day and he's requesting prayer for his sister who um, is, is fighting cancer and it's not going well. They're in need of a miracle. And he asked, could you, could you please send my love to the Beaverton Church family, tell them I miss them and ask them to pray for my sister. And also, uh, Joyce. Uh, Joyce, is her health is failing. And um, it's uh, kind of turned in a dramatic direction. That's uh, a lot of stress on Julius's family. They love her, they're caring for her, but they're facing some hard decisions and they're soliciting prayer. And, uh, and I just wanted to make sure I faithfully relayed that prayer request. And even if you didn't know Pastor Julius, he's a brother in Christ, Joyce, a sister in Christ, uh, I encourage you to lift him up in prayer. I'll remember them in just a moment when we pray. But before we pray about the sermon, let me just kind of set it up uh, just briefly. So, a few Sabbaths from now, on March 30th, as a church family, we're given the opportunity to come together and to celebrate and uh, engage the communion, the Lord's Supper. And in our church family, that includes both the, the service of foot washing and the partaking of the symbols of the body and the blood of Jesus, the bread and the fruit of the vine. Well, uh, Pastor Josh and I, we, we began to discuss, and we thought that it might be enriching to lead up to Sabbath, March 30th, uh, by spending some time in the sermons in the next couple of Sabbaths to just talk about that. Usually on a communion Sabbath, we have very little time, and so we're going to take this Sabbath. So next Sabbath, Josh is actually going to take the, the opportunity to speak about the the foot washing, what's it about, why we do it, what does it mean, and he will unpack that for us a little more next Sabbath. But today I want to share with you a bit of the, the history behind the meal in which Jesus gave us the remembrance symbols of his body and his blood, and that meal was known, is known as the Passover. And so I want to share a little bit about the Passover today. And we can see in, in, in a version of the particular Passover in which Jesus instituted the communion service, the Lord's Supper, in A.D. 30. We can see a version of it in all four of the Gospels, but I'm just going to kind of cue in to the book of Luke. I want to share this and then we'll pray in just a moment. And so, in the book of Luke, we have this moment where Jesus is celebrating the Passover. Then came the first day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, so that we may eat it. And then Jesus gave some direction. They followed that direction a few verses later. And they left and found everything, just as Jesus had told them. And they prepared the Passover. It was at a Passover gathering that Jesus instituted what we are going to share a few Sabbaths from now. If the communion service that Jesus gave us is built upon the foundation or the tradition and the meanings of the ancient Jewish Passover, I thought it might be enriching for us to go back and to consider some of the origins of What was the Passover? The Passover, an annual observance in the Jewish nation. It didn't just appear one day all of a sudden. It has a rich history that speaks strongly to what God has done for us. In other words, the Passover was the product of the hand of God moving over His people for generations and centuries. And I want to touch base with that history just a little bit with you today. So before we go any further, I want to invite you to pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, uh, I just want to take a moment to lift up our brother and sister in Christ, Julius and Joyce Jones. Uh, Lord, just in our, in our gathering, I just want to take that brief moment to, to pray that you would strengthen Julius and give him every good gift he needs to continue to be that husband and father and brother. Bless his sister, bless Joyce, bless his family. Lord, um, just prop them up and give them strength and healing. And Lord, today as we open your word and we consider the, the, the story of the Passover and how that might relate to what it is that we get to do in our church family a few Sabbaths from now, just ask for your blessing. More of you, less of me, give us ears to hear. In your name we pray, amen. So what I want to do is attempt to do a pretty quick sweep of Bible history, the history line that leads to the conditions or the circumstances that lend itself to the the importance and the meaning and the power of the Passover. And just briefly, I want to start with Abraham. Abraham was a man who was righteous in the eyes of God, and and God came and spoke to Abraham and said, Abraham, I want to enter into a covenant relationship with you, and if you'll enter into this relationship with me, your children and your children's children and your generations, I will make them my chosen people. And Abraham said, yes, I want to be in that relationship with you, God, and indeed, God began to bless, and Abraham gave birth to Isaac, and Isaac gave birth to Jacob. And Jacob had 12 sons. On one occasion, when Jacob had left his home country and he was coming back home, before he crossed the river back into his home land of his heritage, he wrestled with the angel of the Lord. And in that wrestling, he says, Bless me of the angel of the Lord. And in that blessing moment, Jacob was given another name. His name was Israel. And Israel had 12 sons that became the 12 tribes of Of God's nation but it wasn't all smooth ten of Jacob's sons sold one of their brothers into slavery his name Joseph they hated Joseph because Joseph held such high favor in their father's experience their father Jacob cherished Joseph more than the rest And they hated him for that out of jealousy and envy. And so they sold their brother Joseph into slavery. Well, even in that journey of slavery, Joseph perseveres in faithfulness to God. And in the trial, God prospers Joseph under his mighty hand. Joseph found himself in Potiphar's house, and God prospered him. But that came crashing down, and Joseph is in prison. Even in prison, God prospers Joseph And then eventually, out of prison, Joseph is released and right into the very courts of Pharaoh. Joseph was called before Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to interpret a dream that concerned feast and famine. And Joseph, under the hand of God, interpreted that dream with such wisdom and such in a profound way that Pharaoh himself, king of Egypt, discerned in Joseph the the evidence of God and he said Joseph I'm going to prosper you I'm going to appoint you as second in command of all of Egypt you will be the one to lead my people during the seven years of abundance so that we might be able to survive and thrive during the seven years of famine that would follow God prospered Joseph and indeed the seven years of famine came and while Joseph was leading the Egyptians in, in, um, in through that famine experience back in his home country, Jacob, Israel, and Jacob's sons and their wives and their children, they were suffering under the severe conditions of the famine. And so there came a day where Jacob said to his sons, Go to Egypt and buy food, unknowingly sending them to Joseph, the son he thought long dead, to go buy food from. Well, the brothers come, and Joseph recognizes them. Here he is, second in command of Egypt, and he recognizes his brothers, but they don't recognize him, and so he tests them. And then there came a moment where Joseph reveals himself to them, and then in a very gracious and loving way, Joseph reunites with them, saying, What you did to harm me, God meant for good. All is forgiven. Come, my brothers. And then Joseph does something that's pretty phenomenal. That is the very bedrock of where the story of Passover begins. Joseph does more than just send food home to his father and his brothers and their children and families. Joseph brings his father Jacob and his eleven brothers to Egypt from Canaan. And they come as Pharaoh's honored guests. And as they arrive, they are a, a nomadic people that are shepherds by trade, if you will. And so Pharaoh points to them, let your family, Joseph, reside in the land of Goshen. Let them be shepherds. And that's what happened for, for generations to come. They were blessed under the hand of God. And the children of Abraham began to grow and expand and become a larger and larger population. But they were not destined to remain in Egypt as Joseph lie dying joseph spoke some final words and he reminded his brothers that they were not to remain in egypt forever in genesis 50 we're given those words joseph said to his brothers i'm about to die but god will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land egypt to the land which he promised on oath to abraham to isaac and to jacob they were not to remain in egypt But that day was not imminent. It was still a long way off. But then the story shifts dramatically. There they were living in Egypt because of the hand of God and the prospering of Joseph and the preservation during the famine. They found a place to reside. But then the Pharaoh that favored Joseph, he dies. And a new Pharaoh was installed. And don't miss sight of this. Egypt had many gods. Pharaoh The main God, the prominent God, the visible God of their nation, Pharaoh. Not just a king, but a God among men in the eyes of the Egyptians. And so a new Pharaoh was installed as the God of Egypt. And the Bible simply says, And a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Under this Pharaoh, the Israelites, or as it's written in the Exodus story, the Hebrews, increasingly lost favor, lost the status of honored guest, and began to move towards being slaves. Pharaoh began to become fearful, because the Israelites were increasing in population under the blessing of God. And his answer to how do we control this population and maintain our power, the answer, in his opinion, was to yield power over them through enslavement. The Bible tells us it went this way. Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And Pharaoh said to his people, the Egyptians, Behold, the people of the sons of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal wisely with them or else they will multiply. And in the event of war, they will also join themselves to those who hate us and fight against us and depart from the land. So they appointed taskmasters over the Hebrews to afflict them with hard labor, and they built for Pharaoh's storage cities, Pithom and Ramses. In an effort to solve this threat of the growing population of the Hebrew nation, the first step was to enslave them to put the foot of power on their throats. But they kept growing. They kept expanding. They became bigger and bigger and bigger. And so, Pharaoh took other drastic measures. In an effort to solve this threat of the Hebrew population problem, Pharaoh attempted to strategically execute the sons of the Hebrews, the sons of God's nation. Pharaoh set the lines of the war. Don't miss this. Pharaoh, the supreme God of the Egyptians, targeted the sons of Israel, the people of the living God of heaven. It was Pharaoh who drew the nature of the battle. It was Pharaoh who set the lines of what this war would be about. I am the God of Egypt. We have sons in our nation. He is the, they are the Israelites. They have their own God, and they have sons in their nation. And look what his first attempt was. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread out so that they were in dread of the sons of Israel. The Egyptians compelled the sons of Israel to labor rigorously, and they made their lives very, very difficult. And then they sought to take the life. And this was the first plan. The king of Egypt, Pharaoh, spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was Shiphrah, and the other was Puah. And he said to these midwives, And other midwives, when you are helping the Hebrew women give birth and you see them upon the birth stool, if it is a son, then you shall put that son, that boy to death. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives fear God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but let the boys live. This went on for a while, the Pharaoh assuming it was taking place, but it was not taking place because the midwives feared God. And so the nation of Israel, those slaves in a foreign land, continued to multiply and grow in number and population under the blessing of God. And though the plan of using the midwives was not successful, Pharaoh found another way. He tried to be covert, he tried to be secret about it, but his next step was just to make a public proclamation. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born, you are to cast into the Nile, and every daughter you are to keep alive. Out there, if a baby is born among the Hebrew nation, he is to be thrown into the crocodile-infested Nile River as a sacrifice to the gods of the river. Well, during that time, a husband and a wife from the tribe of Levi, Amram and Jochebed, they gave birth to a child. Under this new law that was requiring the killing of the Hebrew boys, they brought into this world and and the, the baby was delivered, and it was a boy. They hid him for three months. But then they could no longer conceal this baby boy. And they were in a real bind because if they were caught, they could lose their other two children, Miriam and Aaron. And so Jochebed, imagine the heart of a mother, Jochebed. She she makes a little ark out of reeds and she seals it with pitch to waterproof it. She places her baby boy in the basket and she pushes him into the Nile in a way keeping the law of the land in a way, trying to find a way around it, pushed him into the night. as a refugee or fugitive, I should say, the slavery back in Egypt had become worse and worse and worse. The more they grew, the harsher the Egyptians became. But they were not to remain in Egypt forever. And so the Israelites began to cry out to God even more fully as their appointed time of deliverance drew even closer. The Bible tells us in Exodus chapter 2, now it came about in the course of those many days that the king of Egypt died. And the sons of Israel sighed because of the bondage, and they cried out, and their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to God. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the sons of Israel, and God took notice of them. The day of their deliverance was coming close. God was about to intervene. And Moses was to be his chosen leader for the deliverance. So then comes that day that God speaks to Moses from the midst of a a burning bush that was remaining green. And and in that intercourse with Moses, we read in Exodus chapter 3 of this event. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their sufferings. So I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land, the promised land, the Canaan land, the land flowing with milk and honey. Now, behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I have seen, them, seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. Moses, it's time for them to be set free. I'm going to call you to be a part of that. Moses is fearful, he's insecure, and he's resisting God's calling on his life. God contends with Moses, he encourages Moses, he even chastises Moses. He resources Moses with some abilities to confront Pharaoh. He says, I'll give you the ability to do some signs and wonders to try to convince Pharaoh. You can throw down your shepherd's staff, your rod, and it will become a snake, and you can pick it back up and it will become a rod. You can put your hand in your cloak clean and healthy and pull it out with leprosy and be able to put it back in and pull it out again clean and whole once again. And I'll even give you, Moses, the ability of signs and wonders turn water to blood. But Moses says, but I'm not a good speaker. And God says, I'll take care of that too. I'll send Aaron along with you and he'll help you speak. So Moses is sent by God to Egypt to confront Pharaoh with a message. Now, remember... It was the Pharaohs who set the stage by the killing of the Hebrew boys. There had been decades of experience, perhaps. I don't know the time frame, but there had been weeping and grieving among the Hebrew slaves as they lost their boys to this decree. So Moses is to go to Pharaoh. And this is what God says, Moses, tell this to Pharaoh. It's found in Exodus chapter 4. And it says this, the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders which I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I said to you, Let my son go that he may serve me, but you have refused to let him go. Behold, I will kill your son, your firstborn. Right away, Moses says, God, the God of our people, says, let my people go. And the stubbornness, as God would appeal to Pharaoh and he would reject those appeals, his heart would become harder and harder and harder. And the killing of the sons of God's nation would have dire consequence if Pharaoh resisted God's voice given through Moses and Aaron. Moses, let my people go. But Pharaoh's heart remained stubborn and he made life even more difficult for the Hebrew slaves. I just want you to try to understand how tragic. This was not a... an arrangement of servanthood that was somewhat amenable between master and slave. This had become a brutal regime of slavery that the Israelites were living under. And he made their life more difficult by demanding the same amount of work, but providing them less resources and decreeing the Pharaoh saying, beat them more often. Beat them more often. God had said, listen, if you don't respond... As you have taken the life of the sons of my nation, the sons of your nation will perish. But Pharaoh wouldn't respond, and so began the ten plagues. You may have never thought about it this way, but the first nine plagues were actually God revealing His power and appealing to the hard heart of Pharaoh so that the loss of the firstborns of the Egyptians might not come to pass. After plague one, Pharaoh could have said, I'm out. And the tenth plague would not have happened. The same with two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine. But each appeal to the heart of Pharaoh the Nile River turning the blood, the, the frogs, the lice, the flies, the disease on livestock, the boils, the hail, the locusts, and the darkness each one of those appeals to the heart of Pharaoh, he became harder and harder and harder as he rejected the warnings, rejected the signs, rejected the calling to be obedient to the God of heaven. Therefore, the initial warning of the death of the Egyptians' firstborn sons became imminent. It's the tenth plague. The Bible says in Exodus 11, Now the Lord said to Moses, One more plague I will bring on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, Pharaoh will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will surely drive you out from here completely. Completely. Moses said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, about midnight, about midnight, this is what the Lord says, about midnight I'm going to go out into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of the Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the millstones, all the firstborn of the cattle as well. Moreover, there shall be a great cry in the land of Egypt, such as there has not been before, and such as shall never be again. There had been great crying in the land of Egypt, but it was coming from the Hebrew mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters as they saw the baby boys perish. And God is now saying to Pharaoh at midnight, what you have reaped, you will, uh, what you have sown, you will now reap. All this history matters because it shows just how much the hand of God had moved among His people and the history of His people that led to that night, that moment, that night of the tenth plague, that night of their exodus and their deliverance, that night where the Passover was established. And here's how it happened. Moses had told Pharaoh, this is what will be. Moses was then instructed to instruct the Israelites what they must do to ensure that the tenth plague, the plague of death, if you will, would pass over them. And the instructions were as such. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month they are each to take a lamb for themselves, according to their father's households, a lamb for each household. And now if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and a neighbor nearest can kind of come together according to their number of persons. And according to what each man should eat, you are to divide the lamb. So on the 10th day of this month, you are to select this lamb. Your lamb shall be unblemished male, a year old. You may take it from sheep or from goats. You shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. That's the day of Passover. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to sacrifice to kill that precious little lamb at twilight. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat. They shall eat the flesh that same night, roasted with fire, and they shall eat it with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs. Now, you shall eat it in this manner with your loins girded and your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste, it is the Lord's pass over. They were to select a perfect sacrifice, a lamb. And at the appointed moment, they were to sacrifice that lamb and, and catch some of the blood, and the blood would be applied to the doorpost and to the header. And then by fire, they were to roast that lamb and consume it, And along with that lamb, they were to eat unleavened bread. Unleavened because there was no time to let it rise. Don't put the leaven in it. There's no time for that. You're about to be set free. They ate bitter herbs along with that bread because the bitter herbs were symbolic of the bitterness of their slavery. And they were to eat it standing up because your deliverance is happening right now, tonight. And so that moment came. In Exodus 12, 12-13, For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Lamb sacrificed. Blood applied. So that the plague of death would pass over. And what's interesting is this. is Even before the actual experience took place. God provided instructions. That they were to continue to eat this meal. Yearly. As a memorial. That they might remember who delivered them from bondage the deliverance hadn't happened yet but the promise of the Lord was sure and so he says do this in remembrance of me it says that in the next verse now this day will be a memorial to you and you shall celebrate as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations and you are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread for on this very day I brought you out Uh, your host out of the land of Egypt, therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a permanent ordinance. Continues. Uh, Not continue yet. So the Israelites began to do that. Faithfully they followed the guidance that was given for Moses for that night and in remembrance for generations to come. And the Bible reads that the story continues and indeed all that was prophesied, all that was directed, all that was said was going to happen, happens. Then Moses, he called for the elders of Israel, and he says, you've got to do this. Go and take yourselves the lamb according to your families. Slay that Passover lamb. You shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood in the basin and apply some on the blood to the basin, lentil, the doorpost. Door None of you shall go outside of the house until morning. Stay in the house. Eat the meal. And that's what happened. For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and the two on the doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroying angel to come in your houses to smite you. And you shall observe this event as an ordinance for you and your children forever. When you enter the land which the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall observe this right. Just catch this detail. And when your children say to you, what does this right mean to you? You shall say, it is a Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the house of the sons of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians, but spared our homes. And the people bowed low in worship. And then the sons of Israel went and did so just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. So they did. That meal, the Passover, and the perpetuation of the Passover was very much for the children so that the children could see what was happening and say, what's this all about? So that they could perpetuate the story of God's deliverance to the children. Just as a side note, when we do communion, it's very much for the children, so that they can look and say, what's this about? And we can tell them about Jesus. Sadly, the Egyptians suffered terribly because of the hardness of Pharaoh's heart. The night had come and the Egyptians reaped what they had sown by the killing of the Israelite boys. But the Israelites, who had done as the Lord had directed, were passed over by the angel of death. They were spared the death of the firstborn because of the blood of the Lamb and they were set free from the bondage of slavery. Beginning that night the Jewish nation annually observed the Passover feast, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. But over time, as they began to observe this Passover feast, new elements were appropriately added into this observance that added more rich insight and meaning. And what I mean, they built on that foundation and and new things were added in. For example, in the Exodus story, there's no description of singing, but in time, singing became a very key part of remembering the Passover. In fact, Psalms 113 to Psalms 118 became known as the Hallel Psalms and were recited. They were sung on the joyous occasions in the Jewish economy, very much on the Passover. For example, Psalms 114. When Israel went forth from Egypt to the house of Jacob, from a people of a strange language, Judah became his sanctuary, Israel his dominion. They began to sing as part of Passover. Another thing that was added related to the bread from the very beginning, that was prepare and eat unleavened bread. Don't let it rise. Don't even bother with leavening because there's no time for that was the message. But over time, and I don't know when this began, but they began to do this practice. As they ate the unleavened bread, the head of the table, usually the father, he would take a piece of that unleavened bread and he would break that bread and he would hide a piece of that bread somewhere on the feast table. And then the children were invited to come and look for that hidden piece of bread. And whatever children found that piece of broken bread would receive a special reward. And what they were attempting to insert into the Passover was a symbol that the bread represented the Messiah who is to come from their perspective. And all of Israel hoped to discover that He would be revealed like a child finding that bread on the table and to receive the reward of the Messiah. They added that in. Another thing they added in is originally there was no drink involved in the Passover that night in Egypt as they exodus. But over time, wine that was from red grapes was introduced to kind of bring symbol of the lamb's blood that was on the doorpost, that signaled that death would be passed over that home. And at some point in the tradition developed, and I don't really know where, but. At some point in this history of keeping the Passover, between then and the time of Jesus, it became customary to to pour four glasses of wine. And the four glasses of wine were meant to be consumed and shared with the gathering. And and why four? Well, some say it ties to the four expressions of redemption in Exodus chapter 6. But more interesting than the four is this. The most interesting is that there was a fifth cup. A fifth cup would be set on the table, and it would be poured, but not to be consumed. And when the head of the household would would pour that cup, that cup was known as Elijah's cup. The father would pour this fifth cup, and then he would rise from the table, and he would go and open the door of the house to symbolically invite Elijah to come in and to partake of that fifth cup. Now, that may sound strange to us, but remember this. Their hopes were that the prophet Elijah, who was taken to heaven without seeing death in a fiery chariot, they had hoped as a people of God that Elijah would appear to be the forerunner of the Messiah. They had longed for either Elijah himself to reappear or for one to come in the power of Elijah to reveal the Messiah. And so they would pour a fifth cup and say, don't drink that one. That's Elijah's cup. That represents our hope that the one who will pave the way for the Messiah will come and open the door. Maybe Elijah will come in tonight. And By the time we reach Luke chapter 22 in A.D. 30, the Jews had for 1,400 years faithfully observed the Passover in remembrance of the deliverance. And at some point, they added some elements that would Put in there their faith of anticipation of a Messiah who would bring ultimate deliverance. And by the way, by the time we arrive at Luke chapter 22 and A.D. 30, the disciples had celebrated probably two Passovers with Jesus. That had happened just like they had happened for 1,400 years. But 1,400 years later, and all of Jerusalem was active in Passover preparations... Jesus' disciples had prepared both a place and a traditional meal to share the Passover with Jesus. The, The table had been set with a feast, lots of things, and certainly including the unleavened bread, unfermented by yeast. Certainly three circular loaves ready to be broken. On the table must have been bitter herbs to be eaten with the bread. And and the the lamb had been sacrificed and and roasted to be the Passover lamb. And and Jesus' words, the fruit of the vine. As the bread was unfermented, the red grape juice unfermented. Four cups to consume and a fifth cup for Elijah. And watch what happens as Jesus builds upon the Passover meal. When the hour had come, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. It seems that Jesus says, I have longed for this Passover. More than the last one, more than the last one. This Passover, I've longed to eat this one with you because it's the one that's happening right before my suffering, right before all that it foreshadowed is about to take place. I have longed for this moment, but notice Jesus' thoughts are not directed back into history. His thoughts are forward thinking. I will never again share this meal until it has been fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And then in the next verse, it says, And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. Again, this is likely the four cups that were meant to be shared. It's just part of that general meal. And and yes, the the wine in the cups, the fruit of the vine, red in color, representing that blood of the sacrificed lamb. But again, Jesus' thoughts are not backwards. They're forwards right now. And then something different happens. Jesus begins to take all that was Passover and make it into what we now observe today. Look at this. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The Passover was very much about remembering deliverance. And now Jesus is doing the same thing. He's saying, it's just going to be a little different. It's still about remembering, but now it's remembering me. But notice what happens different. Jesus, as the head of the table, He comes to the moment that He'd probably done before, and He breaks the bread. And notice, there's no mention in this upper room experience of them eating the bitter herbs. Because the bitterness of slavery of sin was about to be taken away through his suffering. But he picks up this bread and he breaks it. But he doesn't hide a piece according to the custom. That idea of hide a piece so that the children may find it and reveal the Messiah. He doesn't do that. He breaks it and distributes it. Perhaps meaning he's saying the Messiah is no longer hidden. Jesus, the Messiah, it's me, I am revealed. And then he shifted the meaning of the bread to the idea of take part in the Messiah, the bread of life. I am here, I am not hidden, and I am soon to suffer. So eat this bread and do it after my suffering in remembrance of me. The Passover bread was a memory of the deliverance of, from Egyptian slavery, and now Jesus' supper, the bread, is a memory of His bodily sacrifice that delivers us from sin. Now remember, He's already passed a cup and say, Hey, yeah, here, take this cup. I've had a blessing. Enjoy it. Drink it. But in verse 20, And in the same way He took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. He'd already shared the fruit of the vine of the four cups. So very likely, this cup in verse 20 was Elijah's cup. That cup that had been poured for centuries, but never to be drank, never to be consumed. That cup that had been poured probably twice before with Jesus and the disciples, but not consumed. But on this occasion, Jesus picks that cup up. And instead of going to open the door for Elijah he says, here, drink from this cup. He was showing them that this was the last Passover meal as it has been because its symbolism had been fulfilled. Elijah's mission has come in the person of John the Baptist who cleared the way for Jesus the Messiah The Messiah had come, and it was He, Jesus. He says, tonight is the night that all of this is fulfilled. Drink the cup and do it in remembrance of me. And so Jesus, soon to fulfill the symbol of a sacrificed lamb's blood, He he points forward by giving it new meaning. This blood is my new covenant that is shed for you. Identifies Himself as a sacrificial lamb who's about to suffer, and through His shed blood applied to the life there can be deliverance from slavery to sin and death. Drinking the Elijah cup must have been loaded with a sense of meaning. Can you imagine? Their whole life they have done Passover, never allowed to touch that cup, and now Jesus is saying, drink it. Something was happening, something different. In time, I believe they would come to realize that Jesus was truly the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And maybe they even realized that by Jesus saying, drink the cup of Elijah, that they were receiving the call of Elijah to proclaim the coming of the Lord. In the parallel gospel accounts, both Matthew and Mark were told that Jesus closed the Passover meal, now renewed with fresh meaning, and they sang a hymn together. And Maybe it was Psalms 117, and in praise the Lord all nations, Laud Him, all peoples, for His loving kindness is great towards us, and the truth of the Lord is everlasting. Praise the Lord. We need to close just briefly. After the death and burial and resurrection, and after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, certainly Jesus' disciples more fully understood what Jesus had asked them to do that night in remembrance of His sacrifice, both body and blood. To this day, the Jews still observe the Passover as they look back to the Exodus deliverance from slavery, as they look back to the death of that lamb on the doorpost that spared them from the tenth plague. And to this day, they still celebrate Passover from their perspective, still looking for the Messiah. But Christians, followers of Jesus, If you will, spiritual Israel, we partake in the Lord's supper that was built upon the foundation of the Passover, Jesus' Passover, and we partake of it in remembrance that a Messiah has come. And he was the Passover Lamb. And he laid down his life and death, and he took it back up in resurrection. We remember Jesus' sacrifice, the Lamb of God, who delivered us from slavery and death. We partake in this meal to acknowledge and celebrate what Jesus has done for us. Paul said it really well in Colossians For Jesus rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin and so the early church began to keep the passover in a whole different way the lord's supper and we in our own way in our own time seek to follow in that instruction and tradition the apostle paul wrote for i received from the lord which i also delivered to you But the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Same way he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So when we come together together, and we share in the symbols of Jesus' sacrifice, our next opportunity, Sabbath, March 30th. And we, we share with song and prayer and the partaking of the symbol of the bread, unleavened bread, and the fruit of the vine. Let us prayerfully approach a moment like that, remembering. And I think Paul was right on target when he said, For Christ, our Passover also has been sacrificed. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord Jesus, I just pray that the hearing of your word will produce your spiritual fruit in our lives. Lord, I pray that the time we've spent together today will just help us to anchor more fully in the the privilege and the beauty and the history. And in the rejoicing that you are the Messiah and you have set us free from the wages of sin. You've set us free from the slavery of sin. You are our Passover lamb. In your name we pray. Amen.